I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Outside In is committed to journalistic rigor and transparency. To learn about the reporting process for this series, please visit windfallpodcast.org. When Barack Obama was elected president, his administration had a big decision to make whether or not to approve America's first ever offshore wind farm, a project in federal waters called Cape Wind. The Obama administration said it had three priorities, renewable energy, preserving history, and tribal rights. When it came to Cape Wind, there was just one problem. So when I received the uh, environmental impact study, which was the final, um, I was shocked because we had not been engaged or informed um, and then, you know, seeing what that impact was just really, uh, really rather floored me. That's Cheryl Andrews Maltese, the chairwoman of the Wampanoag tribe of Gayhead Aquina. Cheryl told us that at every step of the way, the government had skirted around her tribe. It was almost like, oh, we didn't know you guys were around. And it's like, amazing. You didn't look. Cheryl leads one of two tribes that decided to oppose the project. The other is the Mashpee. Their history goes back to the last ice age, when the seas were lower than they are today. They lived in places that are now covered by the ocean. The archaeological evidence of our presence, you know, robust culture and civilization, a lot of it is buried underwater. 
Now, Cheryl says it's obvious to her that there must be archaeological remains of her people underwater, especially in places where the tribe's oral history says they lived, places like the exact location where America's first offshore wind farm was going to be built. So knowing where those wind turbines were going to be and that it was going to be an industrial park, it would basically obliterate for all time um, the evidence that we know that, you know, the science of archaeology has not caught up to our oral tradition and our oral history. A few months before the Obama administration prepared to make its final decision on the wind farm, they sent the Secretary of the Interior on a sort of charm offensive. This was the person who would make the final decision, and a man who often wore bolo ties and cowboy hats for public appearances. Uh, it's important that we respect our relationships with the nation's first Americans, and so the consultations... Maybe they were trying to right the wrong of not having consulted the tribes. Maybe they were just concerned about how it all looked. But either way, years later, here's how Cheryl said that meeting went down. The questions that were being posed is basically leaning towards, so what is it going to take to make you agree? What is it? What can we offer <clears throat> so that the tribe will stop fighting us on getting this project done? And I looked and said, pointed to those beautiful, expensive, multi-million dollar homes owned by all of these non-Indian, non-Native people. And sat there and said, these are our homelands. Look at what we deal with. Not one of these homes are ours or could be afforded by us. All we have is our history and our culture. And you're asking me what it's going to take for us to erase that history? Um, and I said, there is no price. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Windfall, a special series from Outside In. I'm Annie Ropeek. And I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Last time on Windfall, we spoke to the Danish engineer who invented the modern wind turbine, Henrik Stiesdahl, who people call the father of wind energy. Stiesdahl has watched the offshore wind industry transform from a few turbines in the North Sea 30 years ago to an industry that's growing exponentially. And what Henrik told us is that the year the growth curve exploded was 2010. And that's interesting, because in 2010, when offshore wind was exploding in Europe, here in the U.S., it was imploding. In this episode, we're going to learn why the U.S. is so far behind in this leg of the race against climate change. We'll go back to the moment when America took a big step across the starting line, then slowly, excruciatingly, it pointed the starting gun straight down and shot itself in the foot. This wind farm is going to be embraced by the Cape Cod community. This is a boondoggle. It's a great deal for this developer. It's going to be embraced by the nations. Fight with people power for wind power. I'm asking you to be heroes here. Make a few sacrifices. We live in a post-truth world now. It certainly felt like a post-truth world then, too. You did not know who to believe. For this episode, we're going to hand things over to senior producer Jack Rodolico. We sent him deep into the archives to figure out where the Cape Wind story started, how things fell apart, and what it all means for this moment we're in right now. Here's Jack. The first time the Boston Globe printed the words Cape Wind, President George W. Bush was in his first year in office. 
And by the time the wind farm was declared dead, Donald Trump was in his first year in the White House. 16 years. It was a nasty fight, polarizing, even by today's standards, and honestly, kind of zany. Cape Wind was first proposed as 170 turbines, and it was later scaled back to 130. That's a big wind farm, 420 megawatts, or about 85 Vindaboos. And the guy who dreamed it up was Jim Gordon. Here we were thinking that we could develop a project that could produce over 75% of the Cape and Islands electricity with zero fuel consumption, zero pollutant emissions. What's not to like about that? Jim Gordon is an energy entrepreneur. And he says he always wanted to be a part of an energy transition. In the 80s and 90s, he built power plants that ran on natural gas, which burns a bit cleaner than oil and coal. In 2000, he sold those power plants, five of them, for an estimated $250 million. And then he made a leap into the renewable energy market. He took a trip to Denmark, and he had his light bulb moment, offshore wind, And looking at New England, it's very similar to Northern Europe in that it's densely populated, not a lot of land, but it does have a long coastline. When he came back to the States, he found what he thought was the perfect spot for a wind farm. It was even in his home state, Massachusetts. But it had an enormous amount of wind. And it had really a perfect site to develop an offshore wind farm. The interesting thing here is that there were no rules for where turbines could go in the ocean. It it was almost like no one had even thought about it. This is Sean Corcoran. In the mid-aughts, he took a job as a reporter and editor at a tiny public radio station on Cape Cod called WCAI. And Sean here is pointing to the thing that would plague Jim Gordon for the next 16 years. The U.S. government did have a lot of rules for existing uses of federal waters. Fishing to the right, shipping lanes on the left, watch out for the whales. Wind turbines? No. And so Jim Gordon just got to decide. I want to put it there. There. Let's talk about there. Because this location in particular would highlight just how unprepared the government was. And it would open this whole thing up to layer upon layer of chaos. After checking with some lawyers, Jim Gordon realized the authority to permit an offshore wind farm rested with the Army Corps of Engineers because of something called the Rivers and Harbors Act. That law says the Army Corps governs, quote, any wharf, pier, breakwater, bulkhead, jetty, or other structures out on the continental shelf. It was passed by Congress in 1899. Jim Gordon was going to need approval from a federal agency that had never permitted anything like this and that was given its authority by Congress at a time when windmills were made of wood. 
The spot Jim chose was Nantucket Sound. It's south of Massachusetts, tucked between Cape Cod and two islands, Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard is located just off Cape Cod. This island was once called Nopi, meaning amid the water, by Wampanoag Native Americans who have lived here for more than 10,000 Nantucket Sound is 20-plus miles across, which means the middle of the sound is far enough from Massachusetts to be under the jurisdiction of the federal government. That's where Jim wanted to build his wind farm, out there, in the middle. So this was federal water. It was as much owned by me as it was you or people in Idaho or Washington State. This was federal waters owned by all the people in the United States. But it was just a little donut hole of federal waters, almost completely surrounded by Massachusetts waters. I mean, all those pictures of the Kennedy family, you know, with the windswept hair and on boats, that was all Nantucket Sound. That is impossible. Robert, you're mixing apples and oranges. We are not privatizing. I let you finish. Let me finish. You're allowed to privatize the territorial seas and the outer continental shelf. What's to stop any individual from doing that? This is Jim Gordon on a nationally syndicated radio show after he announced his plans to build Cape Wind. And he's trying to get a word in with a very angry Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., son of RFK and nephew of JFK. Today, he's mostly known as an anti-vaxxer, 20 years ago, he was a mainstream environmental crusader and a lover of Nantucket Sound. Please let me finish, Mr. Kennedy. Number two. Or anybody going to take their kids out on a boat? What if the engine dies when you're upwind of one of those? Or what if the sail breaks when you're upwind of one of those towers? Look, we've covered covered some of this ground before. We got a lot of... The thing that came to characterize the opposition to Cape Wind, the angle the national media loved and would hit again and again, was the intense political hypocrisy of the brand of not-in-my-backyard sentiment, nimbyism, at play here. This is a boondoggle. That, and who do you think pays when we talk about subsidies? Those come out of taxpayers' uh, pockets. Senator Ted Kennedy took to the floor of the United States Senate to attack Cape Wind. It's a great deal for this developer. It's a great deal for the venture capitalists that are put in there. They'll get money that they won't be able to count. But the thing about the opposition to Cape Wind, it was bipartisan. Politics are insane. I'd never seen anything like it. You couldn't predict who was going to come down where. This is not a decision about money. It's not even a decision about power. It is a decision about our environment. Recognize that voice? That's Massachusetts then-governor Mitt Romney. He's railing against Cape Wind, sounding like some environmental crusader. It is a heritage given to us by God. We may not, we cannot trash this extraordinary resource that the Cape enjoys. Thank you. But it doesn't stop there. It stops, I mean, look at the Bush administration. The only reason the Bush administration liked the project was because Ted Kennedy hated it. There was hypocrisy everywhere. In those early years, 2001 through 2005, politicians framed their opposition to Cape Wind carefully. 
They didn't oppose wind power, they'd say. They opposed it there. They said they feared it would destroy Nantucket Sound's sensitive ecology, that it would destroy the local tourist economy. To outsiders, that just made this seem all the more hypocritical. Rich liberals and rich conservatives all repeating the same lines. Before the ink was dry on the Boston Globe article, (laughs) an opposition group formed, financed and fueled by extremely wealthy trophy homeowners and basically threw down the gauntlet. This opposition group, they gave themselves an innocuous name, the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound, like a little local conservation group, the Friends of the Tree in the Park. Here's Sean Corcoran. And if you went to the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound's offices, you'd probably see that them that way, too. I mean, with the volunteers, and it's a pretty fairly small staff. But if you look at who the donors are, they never ran out of money. Those donors, unlike the Kennedys, these people had never claimed to be environmentalists. One was a copper mining executive whose company was a major polluter. And another was a member of one of America's richest and most influential conservative families. He was a Koch brother, Bill Koch. Frankly, you know, reporters rely on trust and they rely on honesty. And I think early on, there were some underhand moves by the alliance. It made me mistrustful of them. This is another reporter who followed Cape Wind very closely. For many years, Beth Daly covered the environment for the Boston Globe. Bill Koch did not often say things publicly about Cape Wind. He and the other board members mostly let their money do the talking. The alliance had a small staff dedicated to drumming up local grassroots opposition. The alliance hired a conservative think tank to write white papers. And I remember battles I would have with the head of that organization saying, um... I'm not going to run the story, the study. They would start yelling at me. And they'd say, why not? I said, well, because it's paid for by the Alliance for Nantucket Sound, and the finding is exactly what they say on their website. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. I'm like... They went further than that, too. One time, an Alliance employee got caught trying to plant a fake newspaper story that slandered Cape Wind. He resigned. Another time, the Alliance put an ad in the Cape Cod Times with a picture of what Cape Wind would look like from the beach. But it was all wrong. The picture made it look way bigger, much closer to land, too. The Alliance said they'd made a mistake after an estimated 100,000 readers saw it. Um, These kind of, like, subterfuge, like, back and forth was always kind of an undercurrent. Like, I would talk to people who would be supporters of Cape Wind or against it. Sometimes I'd be like, has someone paid for your pamphlets? Like, has, who, how, who are you, like, because things became so divided, it was very difficult to trust anyone. The national press had a lot of fun lampooning the alliance to protect Nantucket Sound. But locally, they were a force. They knew their audience. I'm Autocron Guide. Nantucket Sound is a very special place. I've appreciated her natural beauty for years. Now I'm very concerned about a private... The Alliance got Walter Cronkite to make a commercial for them. Cronkite, 
who was once called the most trusted man in America. He had a house on Martha's Vineyard. Our national treasures should be off limits to industrialization and then... Meanwhile, Jim Gordon was in the press constantly defending his project from this onslaught of opposition. Tourism would die, birds would die, whales would die, planes would crash into wind turbines. I mean, the calamities and the hyperbole. Jim visited Walter Cronkite at his home and actually convinced Cronkite to drop his opposition. But new opponents just kept emerging, powerful ones. Proposals popped up in Congress, measures meant to specifically kill Cape Wind. One was proposed by a senator in Alaska, a Republican and longtime friend of Ted Kennedy's. A senator from Virginia intervened too. His former in-laws had a vacation house on Cape Cod. As we have the politics going on and the hypocrisy going on, we also had a race against Texas because Texas was going to have the first offshore. Oh, no, now we have a race against Rhode Island because Rhode Island's going to have the first offshore. Then you had journalists going to Europe. Some of them coming back say, what a boondoggle. These things, they're falling apart in the ocean. Others coming back saying, these things are saving whole communities over there. We live in a post-truth world now. It certainly felt like a post-truth world then, too. You did not know who to believe. Cape Wind became this red-hot political potato. It was divisive. It was murky. Unions backed it. Chamber of Commerce types opposed it. The Boston Globe editorial page backed it. The Cape Cod Times editorial page opposed it. Cape Wind even fractured environmentalists. Greenpeace, for it. The Ocean Conservancy, against it. The World Wildlife Fund, for it. The International Wildlife Coalition, against it. In part, Jim Gordon had a credibility problem with environmentalists. The guy was a fossil fuel developer. In fact, in the midst of the permitting process for Cape Wind, his company proposed a diesel-fired power plant across the street from an elementary school in a low-income neighborhood. It all just raised these very subjective questions about what it meant to protect the environment. There was polling that showed 80-plus percent of Massachusetts residents backed Cape Wind. But when people on Cape Cod were polled, those margins were much closer. This was more than NIMBY. It was nuanced, and people struggled with it. Sean Corcoran lived on Cape Cod. He says most of the residents there are not super rich. They work in service jobs, often catering to the rich. And Sean says many of these folks choose to live on the Cape because they love the ocean. They love the beach. It's a respite. And he says that question about how to protect what you love, it just tore people up. Am I an environmentalist of this place? Do I need to protect Nantucket Sound from these turbines, 130 of them, taller than the, than the Statue of Liberty? Or am I an environmentalist of the world and I recognize that these turbines are symbolic of something bigger. And it all spilled out at the public meetings. Put windmills over our town halls. Put windmills over our schools. Put windmills next to every business that wants them. Put them in my backyard. But please do not allow them to build a power plant 
in the only undeveloped place that Cape Cod has left. Thank you. I remember one meeting, and there were a bunch of people there from West Virginia, and they were there to support the project. Greetings from wild, wonderful West Virginia. My name is Janet Keating, the executive director of the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition. They went up to the microphone holding a jar of dirty water that they say came out of their faucets. And they talked about blowing up mountaintops in, in order to get to coal. Mountaintop removal is killing Appalachia. It's killing our hopes and our dreams and our future. We need your help in Appalachia. I'm asking you to be heroes here. Make a few sacrifices. You're concerned about how big those things are going to look on the horizon? Well, I'm concerned about the water that comes out of my tap that I can set on fire. I'm sorry. I, I, I do have some sympathy for those who are concerned about their view, but come and see the view sheds and how they've been despoiled in Appalachia. It took the Army Corps three years to issue a draft of the Cape Wind Environmental Impact Statement. It was 4,000 pages. All those arguments against the project, that the turbines could impede right whale migration, kill thousands of birds, cut down small airplanes mid-flight, according to the impact statement, nope, the Army Corps was all but ready to issue a permit. But in the three years it took them to write that report, Congress had been debating what to do about the fact that there was no process in place to deal with offshore wind projects. That law from 1899, the Rivers and Harbors Act, 106 years later, Congress updated it. They passed the Energy Policy Act of 2005, which created a predictable path for choosing locations for offshore wind farms and granting them a permit. This took the authority to permit offshore wind farms away from the Army Corps and handed it to another agency entirely. The upshot for Cape Wind, that 4,000-page impact statement, flushed down the toilet. Congress sent Jim Gordon and Cape Wind back to the starting line. And the opponents, Coke money and all, they weren't going anywhere. We'll tell that story after. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Break. Welcome back to Windfall. I'm Annie Ropeek. And I'm Sam Evans-Brown. After Cape Wind's first environmental impact statement got flushed, it took the federal government another six years to redo that statement. Six years of more scrutiny, more delay. But that delay, in a way, may have helped the project. By the time they got a second rewritten environmental impact statement, the politics had shifted. Massachusetts voted in a governor who supported the project. Barack Obama had captured the White House, which meant a Democratic administration held the power to grant the permit Jim Gordon needed. It had been nine years since Jim Gordon had proposed Cape Wind. But after many setbacks, it seemed that the feds would approve it any day now. And then, even by the standards of this story, things got complicated. Here again is senior producer Jack Rodolico. So it's 2010. The environmental impact statement has been redone. It's very favorable to Cape Wind. And that's when the National Park Service stepped in. That was like the biggest shock when that came out. Like it was, I remember the morning, like we all expected the National Park Service not to rule that way. Everyone did. I mean, I think even the opposition did. The National Park Service's opposition to Cape Wind, it hinged on the evidence that down under the water, under the sand in Nantucket Sound, there was history down there history the government should protect. The Park Service issued a statement that Nantucket Sound was eligible to be listed on the National Register of Historic Places, an acknowledgement that Cape Wind could pile drive straight through the Wampanoag people's heritage. It, it blew everyone's socks off because that was like, that was like, whoa, that's a blockade. Both the agencies here, the licensing agency poised to approve Cape Wind and the Park Service that opposed it both were housed in the same department, the Interior Department, which was run by Ken Salazar. That's the guy we mentioned at the very beginning of the story, the guy the Obama administration sent on the charm offensive, the guy with the cowboy hat. We started this uh, morning very early, uh, watching the sunrise with the Mashpee tribe and engaging... The Wampanoag had been voicing their opposition to Cape Wind for years at this point. But all that NIMBY-focused press coverage it had mostly ignored the Wampanoag. Now, it was clear to the press that Salazar was coming to smooth things over, particularly with the Wampanoag. Well, they told us they were coming, and it was a big press releases and whatnot coming, and they came over on a big old ship. This is Cheryl Andrews Maltese again, the tribal chairwoman. When Salazar visited, she wanted access to him and his entourage. 
we were not allowed to go on the ship. It was just for federal staff and the media. That pretty much set the tone for the day. Cheryl says the audience Salazar was really talking to was the press. We must move forward with a renewable energy priority for the nation. It's a priority for President Obama. It's a priority for me as Secretary. They put so much effort into trying to make it look like they were appeasing us, knowing full well that they didn't. To Cheryl, the charm offensive was more offensive than charming. And she wasn't the only one who felt the interior secretary came less to listen and more to be photographed listening. At one point in the day, Salazar sat down with all the big local stakeholders, people for Cape Wind and against it. And apparently he told those stakeholders the same thing he told the press, that he had three priorities, tribal rights, renewable energy, and preserving history. So basically everyone in that room said, or most of the people in that room said, those are not compatible in this location. You can't have it all. And the only responsible thing is either to deny it or to move it to a new location. This is Audra Parker, the current CEO and president of the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound. It was a very tough fight because it did feel at all times that the agencies were trying to figure out how to build this project, how to make it happen, not, you know, should we make it happen or should we not? There was such a pressure because it was supposed to be, you know, America's first offshore wind project. There was a lot of pressure to make it happen. Audra did not lead the Koch-backed alliance in its early, most controversial years. And when she took the reins, she whipped the alliance into shape. Beth Daly at The Globe saw the change. Audra Parker is incredibly poised. She's like an MIT graduate, Brown graduate, you know, one of the smartest people I think I've ever talked to, hands down. She really knows how to win. Cape Wind will be the United States' first offshore wind farm, supplying clean power to homes. When it came down to it, the decision was Salazar's to make. All of the government agencies and local opponents had weighed in. All of the evidence had been gathered. A few months after his offensive, charm offensive, Salazar came back to Massachusetts, this time to announce his decision. This will be the first of many projects up and down the Atlantic coast, which I expect will come online in the years ahead as we build a new energy future for our country. At least, everyone thought it was up to Salazar to decide. Audra Parker disagreed. That day when they were issued the lease, it was not looking good. But I remember thinking, after about three days of incessant press interviews, thinking, okay, our only option is to keep fighting. If we back off, we'll definitely lose. So our only chance is to keep fighting, and we'll fight till we win. The Boston Globe editorial page wrote an open letter to the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound. It said, enough already. But the thing is, Jim Gordon had his federal permit, but he didn't have what is perhaps the most important thing that a project of this size needs, the money. Typically, it's only after a developer gets permission to build a wind farm that banks and investors are willing to sign on the dotted line. And you can imagine, it would be hard for a bank to see Cape Wind as a secure investment 
because of the ferocity of the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound, which had sued Cape Wind at every step. And then they just kept suing. You know, we had 26 lawsuits and regulatory appeals. One judge, after ruling against the Alliance, called them an obdurate band of aggrieved residents. He said the way they were using the courts was a vexatious abuse of the democratic process. Cape Wind had a, had a lot of wins, but we had some also, and ultimately we only needed one. The guy bankrolling the alliance's work, Bill Koch, at the time, he didn't even bother to defend these lawsuits on the merits of their arguments. Koch told a paper his strategy, quote, delay, 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 end quote. Cape Wind entered a kind of purgatory, this prolonged period of uncertainty. For a decade, the focus had been on this big federal permit, but now it was all about financing. Would banks step up to loan Jim Gordon all the construction money? Would they take a risk on this project in the face of endless opposition? Would the politicians who'd supported Cape Wind stand by its side when the public learned that it was going to raise their electricity bills? Sean Corcoran says no, no, and no. And I probably wrote, construction will begin next year, I don't know, 10 times. <laughs> and you, okay, let's go. But no, they couldn't get the financing. They couldn't get the thing built. The lawsuits ran out the clock. The banks wouldn't loan Cape Wind all the money. The electric companies canceled their contracts. And in 2017, remember, 16 years later, Jim Gordon surrendered the lease. So, what did it all mean? Jim Gordon is still riding the renewable energy transition. He's branched out into solar and battery storage. But you can hear it in his voice. Cape Wind is the one that got away. He'd spent years. Completely understanding every aspect of the project on that site actually getting through the permitting process, and poof. For Audra Parker and the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound, this was a singular victory. I think a reporter sent me the signed document, which I love the name of, but it was a um, notice of surrender and project abandonment. And I have a huge signed copy in my office. For Cheryl Andrews Maltese, stopping Cape Wind was the rarest of rebukes, a moment when Native American tribes actually stopped the U.S. government from doing what it wanted. And it's like, except for this little tribe on Martha's Vineyard, who are they? <laughs> well, we showed them who we were. <laughs> but there's another outcome from the Cape Wind saga because the federal government did something that maybe you wouldn't expect. It learned a lesson. Remember how the total lack of any planning for offshore wind by the federal government meant that Jim Gordon had been able to step in and just say, I want to put it there. There. Well, I mentioned it briefly, the Energy Policy Act of 2005. That law said, no, 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 not there. But you can put your turbines here or here or here. It basically zoned the federal seas, carved out chunks of the ocean for turbines, auctioned them off to the highest bidder. 
And they chose spots that would generate the most renewable energy as quickly as possible with the least amount of conflict. Cape Wind had been a process disaster from day one. Since 2009, however, we have from the ground up built an offshore wind leasing program for the United States. They called it smart from the start. So how'd that work out? I would actually call the smart from the start process the stupid from the start process because it was not smart at all. That's next time on Windfall. This episode of Windfall was written by Jack Rodolico, mixed by Taylor Quimby, fact-checked by Sarah Sneath, and produced by Sam Evans-Brown. It was edited by Erica Janik, me, Annie Ropeek, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Felix Poon, and Hannah McCarthy. Erica Janik is the executive producer. Graphics for Windfall were created by Sarah Plord. Special thanks to Beth Daly, who's now editor-in-chief of The Conversation, and Sean Corcoran, who's now managing editor at WGBH and shared audio with us from his years of reporting. Also thanks to Bettina Washington and Richard Andre. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Ben Cosgrove, and Breakmaster Cylinder. Windfall and Outside In are productions of New Hampshire Public Radio, which is supported by you, our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, make a donation to support us. There's a link in the show notes or at our website, windfallpodcast.org. Welcome oh. back. This is Windfall. Oh, hey. <laughs> Didn't see you there. It's, it's Windfall. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or... Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.